Chapter Eleven of the Doctor's Wife by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsten Weber. Chapter Eleven. She only said, "My life is weary." When the chill discomfort of that first evening at Greybridge was past and done with, Isabel felt a kind of remorseful regret for the mute passion of discontent and disappointment that had gone along with it. The keen sense of misery passed with the bad influence of the day and hour. In the sunlight, her new home looked a little better. Her new life seemed a little brighter. Yes, she would do her duty. She would be a good wife to dear George, who was so kind to her and loved her with such a generous devotion. She went to church with him at Greybridge for the first time on the morning after that dreary wet Saturday evening, and all through the sermon she thought of her new home and what she would do to make it bright and pretty. The rector of Greybridge had chosen one of the obscurest texts in Saint Paul's Epistle to the Hebrews for his sermon that morning. And Isabel did not even try to understand him. She let her thoughts ramble away to carpets and curtains and china flower pots and Venetian blinds and little bits of ornamentation which should transform George's house from its square nakedness into a bowery cottage. Oh, if the trees had only grown differently, if there had been trailing parasites climbing up to the chimneys and a sloping lawn and a belt of laurels. And little winding pathways and a rustic seat, half hidden under a weeping willow, instead of that bleak flat of cabbages and gooseberry bushes, and raw clods of earth piled in black ridges across the dreary waste. After church, there was an early dinner of some baked meat prepared by Mrs. Jeffson. Isabel did not take much notice of what she ate. She was at that early period of life when a young person of sentimental temperament scarcely knows roast beef from boiled veal, but she observed that there were steel forks on the surgeon's table, steel forks with knobby horn handles, suggestive of the wildest species of deer, and a metal mustard pot lined with blue glass. And willow-patterned plates, and a brown earthenware jug of home-brewed beer, and that everything was altogether commonplace and vulgar. After dinner, Mrs. Gilbert amused herself by going over the house with her husband. It was a very tolerable house, after all, but it wasn't pretty. It had been inhabited by people who were fully satisfied so long as they had chairs to sit upon. And beds to sleep on, and tables and cups and plates for the common purposes of breakfast, dinner, and supper, and who would have regarded the purchase of a chair that was not intended to be sat upon, or a cup that was never designed to be drunk out of, as something useless and absurd, or even in an indirect manner sinful, because involving the waste of money that might be devoted to a better use. George. Said Isabel gently when she had seen all the rooms, "Did you never think of refurnishing the house? Refurnishing it? How do you mean, Izzie? Buying new furniture, I mean, dear. This is all so old-fashioned." George, the conservative, shook his head. "I like it all the better for that, Izzie," he said. "It was my father's, you know, and his father's before him. I wouldn't change a stick of it for the world." 
Besides, it's such capital, substantial furniture. They don't make such chairs and tables nowadays. No, Izzy murmured with a sigh. I'm very glad they don't. Then she clasped her hand suddenly upon his arm, and looked up at him with her eyes open to their widest extent, and shining with a look of rapture. "'Oh, George!' she cried. "'There was an ottoman in one of the shops at Conventford, with seats for three people, and little stands for people to put their cups and saucers upon, and a place in the middle for—flowers. And I asked the price of it. I often ask the price of things, for it's almost like buying them, you know, and it was only eleven pounds ten, and I dare say they'd take less.' "'And, oh, George, if you'd make the best parlour into a drawing-room, and have that ottoman here in the centre, and chintz curtains lined with rose-colour, and a white-watered paper on the walls, and Venetian shutters outside—' George put his hand upon the pretty mouth from which the eager words came so rapidly. "'Why, Izzy,' he said, "'you'd ruin me before half the year was out. All that finery would make a hole in a hundred pounds.' "'No, no, dear, the best parlour was good enough for my father and mother, and it ought to be good enough for you and me. By and by, when my practice extends, Izzy, as I've every reason to hope it will, we'll talk about a new Kittleminster carpet, a nice serviceable brown ground with a drab spot, or something of that kind. But until then—' Isabel turned away from him with a gesture of disgust. "'What do I care about new carpets?' she said. I wanted it all to look pretty. Yes, she wanted it to look pretty. She wanted to infuse some beauty into her life, something which, in however remote a degree, should be akin to the things she read of in her books. Everything that was beautiful gave her a thrill of happiness. Everything that was ugly gave her a shudder of pain. And she had not yet learned that life was never meant to be all happiness, and that the soul must struggle toward the upper light, out of a region of pain and darkness and confusion, as the blossoming plant pushes its way to the sunshine from amongst dull clods of earth. She wanted to be happy and enjoy herself in her own way. She was not content to wait till her allotted portion of joy came to her and she mistook the power to appreciate and enjoy beautiful things for a kind of divine right to happiness and splendor. To say that George Gilbert did not understand his wife was to say very little. Nobody, except perhaps Sigismund Smith, had ever yet understood Isabel. She did not express herself better than other girls of her age. Sometimes she expressed herself worse— for she wanted to say so much, and a hopeless confusion would arise every now and then out of that entanglement of eager thought and romantic rapture which filled her brain. In Miss Sleaford's own home people had been a great deal too occupied with the ordinary bustle of life to trouble themselves about a young lady's romantic reveries. Mrs. Sleaford had thought that she had said all that was to be said about Isabel, when she had denounced her as a lazy, selfish thing, who would have sat on the grass and read novels if the house had been blazing, and all her family perishing in the flames. The boys had looked upon their half-sister with all that supercilious mixture of pity and contempt, with which all boys are apt to regard any fellow-creature who is so weak-minded as to be a girl. 
Mr. Sleaford had been very fond of his daughter, but he had loved her chiefly because she was pretty, and because of those dark eyes whose like he had never seen except in the face of the young broken-hearted wife so early lost to him. Nobody had ever quite understood Isabel, and least of all could George Gilbert understand the woman whom he had chosen for his wife. He loved and admired her, and he was honestly anxious that she should be happy, but then he wanted her to be happy according to his ideas of happiness, and not her own. He wanted her to be delighted with stiff little tea-parties, at which the Mrs. Palkett and the Mrs. Burdock and young Mrs. Henry Palmer, wife of Mr. Henry Palmer, Jr., solicitor, discoursed pleasantly of the newest patterns in crochet and the last popular memoir of some departed evangelical curate. Isabel did not take any interest in these things, and could not make herself happy with these people. Unluckily, she allowed this to be seen, and after a few tea-parties the Greybridge aristocracy dropped away from her, only calling now and then, out of respect for George, who was heartily compassioned on account of his most mistaken selection of a wife. So Isabel was left to herself, and little by little fell back into very much the same kind of life as that which she had led at Camberwell. She had given up all thought of beautifying the house which was now her home. After that struggle about the ottoman there had been many other struggles, in which Isabel had pleaded for smaller and less expensive improvements, only to be blighted by that hard common sense with which Mr. George Gilbert was wont, on principle, to crush his wife's enthusiasm. He had married this girl because she was unlike other women and now that she was his own property, he set himself conscientiously to work to smooth her into the most ordinary semblance of everyday womanhood by means of that moral flat-iron called common sense. Of course he succeeded to admiration. Isabel abandoned all hope of making her new home pretty, or transforming George Gilbert into a Walter Gay. She had made a mistake— and she accepted the consequences of her mistake, and fell back upon the useless, dreamy life she had led so long in her father's house. The surgeon's duties occupied him all day long, and Isabel was left to herself. She had none of the common distractions of a young matron. She had no servants to scold, no china to dust, no puddings or pies or soups or hashes to compound for her husband's dinner— Mrs. Jeffson did all that kind of work, and would have bitterly resented any interference from the slip of a girl whom Mr. Gilbert had chosen for his wife. Isabel did as she liked, and this meant reading novels all day long, or as long as she had a novel to read, and writing unfinished verses of a lachrymose nature on half-sheets of paper. When the spring came she went out alone for her husband was away among his patients, and had no time to accompany her. She went for long rambles in that lovely Elizabethan Midlandshire, and thought of the life that never was to be hers. She wandered alone in the country lanes where the hedgerows were budding, and sat alone with her book on her lap, among the buttercups and daisies in the shady angle of a meadow, where the untrimmed hawthorns made a natural bower above her head. 
Stray pedestrians crossing the meadows near Greybridge often found the doctor's young wife sitting under a big green parasol with a little heap of gathered wild flowers fading on the grass beside her and with an open book upon her knees. Sometimes she went as far as Thurston's Crag, the Midlandshire seat of Lord Thurston, a dear old place, an island of medieval splendour amidst a sea of green pasture-land, where, under the very shadow of a noble mansion, there was a waterfall and a miller's cottage that was difficult to believe in out of a picture. There was a wooden bridge across that noisiest of waterfalls, and a monster oak whose spreading branches shadowed all the width of the water, and it was on a rough wooden bench under this dear old tree that Isabel loved best to sit. The Greybridge people were not slow to remark upon Mrs. Gilbert's habits, and hinted that a young person who spent so much of her time in the perusal of works of fiction could scarcely be a model wife. Before George had been married three months, the ladies who had been familiar with him in his bachelorhood had begun to pity him, and had already mapped out for him such a career of domestic wretchedness as rarely falls to the lot of afflicted man. Mrs. Gilbert was not pretty. The Greybridge ladies settled that question at the very first tea-party from which George and his wife were absent. She was not pretty when you looked into her. That was the point upon which the feminine critics laid great stress. At a distance, certainly, Mrs. Gilbert might look showy. The lady who hit upon the adjective showy was very much applauded by her friends. At a distance, Isabel might be called showy, always provided you like eyes that are so large as only by a miracle to escape from being goggles, and lips that are so red as to be unpleasantly suggestive of scarlet fever. But look into Mrs. Gilbert, and even this show of beauty vanished, and you only saw a sickly young person with insignificant features and coarse black hair, so coarse and common in texture that its abnormal length and thickness, of which Isabel was no doubt inordinately proud, were very little to boast of. But while the Greybridge ladies criticized his wife, and prophesied for him all manner of dismal sufferings, George Gilbert, strange to say, was very happy. He had married the woman he loved, and no thought that he had loved unwisely or married hastily ever entered his mind. When he came home from a long day's work, he found a beautiful creature waiting to receive him, a lovely and lovable creature who put her arms around his neck and kissed him and smiled at him. It was not in his nature to see that the graceful little embrace and the welcoming kiss and the smile were rather mechanical matters that came of themselves. He took his dinner or his weak tea or his supper, as the case might be, and stretched his long legs across the familiar hearth-rug and talked to his wife and was happy. If she had an open book beside her plate, and if her eyes wandered to the page every now and then while he was talking to her, she had often told him that she could listen and read at the same time, and no doubt she could do so. What more than sweet smiles and gentle looks could the most exacting husband demand? And George Gilbert had plenty of these, for Isabel was very grateful to him, because he never grumbled at her idleness and novel-reading, or worried and scolded, as her stepmother had done. 
She was fond of him, as she would have been fond of a big elder brother, who let her have a good deal of her own way, and so long as he left her unassailed by his common sense, she was happy and tolerably satisfied with her life. Yes, she was satisfied with her life, which was the same every day, and with the dull old town, where no change ever came. She was satisfied as an opium-eater is satisfied with the common everyday world, which is only the frame that holds together all manner of splendid and ever-changing pictures. She was content with a life in which she had ample leisure to dream of a different existence. Oh, how she thought of that other and brighter life, that life in which there was passion and poetry and beauty and rapture and despair, here among these meadows and winding waters and hedgerows life was a long sleep and one might as well be a brown-eyed cow browsing from week's end to week's end in the same pastures as a beautiful woman with an eager yearning soul mrs gilbert thought of london that wonderful west end mayfair london which has no attribute in common with all the great metropolitan wilderness around and about it she thought of that holy of holies, that inner sanctuary of life, in which all the women are beautiful and all the men are wicked, in which existence is a perpetual whirlpool of balls and dinner-parties and hothouse flowers and despair. She thought of that untasted life and pictured it, and thrilled with a sense of its splendor and brightness, as she sat by the brawling waterfall and heard the creaking wheel of the mill and the splashing of the trailing weeds. She saw herself amongst the light and music of that other world, queen of a lamp-lit boudoir, where loose patches of ermine gleamed whitely upon carpets of velvet pile, where, amid a confusion of glitter and color, she might sit nestling among the cushions of a low-gilded chair, and listening contemptuously—she always imagined herself contemptuous— to the eloquent compliments of a wicked prince. And then the row, she saw herself in the row sometimes upon an Arab, a black Arab, that would run away with her at the most fashionable time in the afternoon, and all but kill her. And then she would rein him up, as no mortal woman ever reined in an Arab steed before, and would ride slowly back between two ranks of half-scared, half-admiring faces, with her hair hanging over her shoulders, and her eyelashes drooping on her flushed cheeks. And then the wicked prince, goaded by an unvarying course of contemptuous treatment, would fall ill and be at the point of death, and one night when she was at a ball with floating robes of cloud-like lace and diamonds glimmering in her hair, he would send for her, that wicked, handsome, adorable creature would send his valet to summon her to his deathbed, and she would see him there in the dim lamplight, pale and repentant and romantic and delightful, and as she fell on her knees in all the splendor of her lace and diamonds, he would break a blood vessel and die. And then she would go back to the ball, and would be the gayest and most beautiful creature in all that whirlpool of elegance and beauty. Only the next morning, when her attendants came to awaken her, they would find her dead. Amongst the books which Mrs. Gilbert most often carried to the bench by the waterfall 
was the identical volume which Charles Raymond had looked at in such a contemptuous spirit in Hurstonleigh Grove, the little thin volume of poems entitled An Alien's Dreams. Mr. Raymond had given his nursery governess a parcel of light literature soon after her marriage, and this poor little book of verses was one of the volumes in the parcel. And as Isabel knew her Byron and her Shelley by heart, and could recite long melancholy rhapsodies from the works of either poet by the hour together, she fastened quite eagerly upon this little green-covered volume by a nameless writer. The alien's dreams seemed like her own fancies, somehow, for they belonged to that bright other world which she was never to see. How familiar the alien was with that delicious region! and how lightly he spoke of the hothouse flowers and diamonds, the ermine carpets and Arab steeds. She read the poems over and over again in that drowsy June weather, sitting in the shabby little common parlour, where the afternoons were too hot for outdoor rambles, and getting up now and again to look at her profile in the glass over the mantelpiece, and to wonder whether she was like any of those gorgeous but hollow-hearted creatures— upon whom the alien showered such torrents of melodious abuse. Who was the alien? Isabel had asked Mr. Raymond that question, and had been a little crashed by the reply. The alien was a Midlandshire squire, Mr. Raymond had told her, and the word squire suggested nothing but a broad-shouldered, rosy-faced man in a scarlet coat and top-boots. Surely no squire could have written those half-heartbroken half-cynical verses, those deliciously scornful elegies upon the hollowness of lovely woman, and things in general. Isabel had her own image of the writer, her own ideal poet, who rose in all his melancholy glory and pushed the red-coated country squire out of her mind when she sat with the alien's dreams in her lap, or scribbled weak imitations of that gentleman's poetry upon the backs of old envelopes and other scraps of waste-paper. Sometimes, when George had eaten his supper, Isabel would do him the favour of reading aloud one of the most spasmodic of the alien's dreams, but when the alien was most melodiously cynical, and the girl's voice tremulous with sudden exaltation of feeling, her eyes, wandering by chance to where her husband sat, would watch him yawning behind his glass of ale, or reckoning a patient's account on the square tips of his fingers. On one occasion poor George was terribly perplexed to behold his wife suddenly drop her book upon her lap and burst into tears. He could imagine no reason for her weeping, and he sat aghast, staring at her for some moments before he could utter any word of consolation. "'You don't care for poetry, George,' she cried with the sudden passion of a spoiled child. "'Oh, why do you let me read to you if you don't care for poetry?' "'But I do care for it, Izzy, dear,' Mr. Gilbert murmured soothingly. "'At least I like to hear you read it, if it amuses you.' Isabel flung the alien into the remotest corner of the little parlour, and turned from her husband as if he had stung her. "'You don't understand me,' she said. "'You don't understand me.' "'No, Isabel, my dear,' returned Mr. Gilbert, with dignity, for his common sense reasserted itself after the first shock of surprise. 
I certainly do not understand you when you give way to such temper as this, without any visible cause. He walked over to the corner of the room, picked up the little volume, and smoothed the crumpled leaves, for his habits were orderly, and the sight of a book lying open upon the carpet was unpleasant to him. Of course poor George was right, and Isabel was a very capricious, ill-tempered young woman when she flew into a passion of rage and grief because her husband counted his fingers while she was reading to him. But then such little things as these made the troubles of people who are spared from the storm and tempest of life. Such sorrows as these are the scotch mists, the drizzling rains of existence. The weather doesn't appear so very bad to those who behold it from a window, but that sort of scarcely perceptible drizzle chills the hapless pedestrian to the very bone. I have heard of a lady who was an exquisite musician, and who in the dusky twilight of a honeymoon evening played to her husband, played as some women play, pouring out all her soul upon the keys of the piano, breathing her finest and purest thoughts into one of Beethoven's sublime sonatas. "'That's a very pretty tune,' said the husband, complacently. She was a proud, reserved woman, and she closed the piano without a word of complaint or disdain. But she lived to be old, and she never touched the keys again. End of chapter 11 Recording by Kirsten Weber.